we have a separation of powers under the Constitution of the United States. Um, and I believe it would establish a terrible precedent. Really? Do you, Mike Pence? A terrible precedent to testify to a criminal grand jury about an assassination attempt on the vice president? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. When that vice president? I got the feeling that something right. Was you? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Really? And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. We'll discuss. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. I hope you agree. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, so, yes, uh, I will admit, Desi Doyen, yeah. that it uh, accountability, uh, it takes a while. <laughs> yes. There, yes, apparently it does. There's no question <laughs> about it. When we're dealing especially with, with facts and the law and, in particular, criminal prosecutions and, in fact, criminal prosecutions of a former president, yeah, it all takes a while. Don't forget, I think it was about three years after Watergate before anybody ever went to jail there. We're only two years out from whatever nightmares uh, Donald Trump brought upon the country at the end of his uh, term back in, uh, well, early 2021. So I do understand the frustration from many. But you likely only get one shot at this, at least one shot per crime, uh, and there are a lot of crimes that Donald Trump is currently being investigated for, and many of them are really big and often complicated crimes. So, um, you know, I, I get it. It'll take a while, uh, but I would suggest, and we'll see if my guest agrees momentarily, all of these many investigations are still moving forward apace, no matter how frustratingly long it may take. To that end, um, on our uh, on tomorrow's broadcast, we will have the first details from the special grand jury report in Georgia, the one that was convened by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis regarding the criminal conspiracy by Team Trump to steal the 2020 election in that state. That after a state superior court judge ordered the introduction and conclusion of the special grand jury report in which they have 
made recommendations for and or against bringing indictments potentially against the former president of the United States and a number of those around him like Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, a whole bunch of fake electors in Georgia, including the chair of the state GOP. Also being released on Thursday uh, from that special grand jury report is the section on witnesses that the panel believes may have lied to them during uh, testimony, which is also a crime. None of the sections, however, will include the names of potential defendants, people who could be charged, that at District Attorney Willis's request, so as to be fair to those people, as she told the judge that charging decisions in this case are imminent. Now, as I said at the time, it depends on your definition of imminent. That was about three weeks ago. And those decisions have yet to be announced one way or another. But as of Thursday, we we should have a whole bunch of fresh insight into how that probe is going and what we might expect from it and just how imminent those charges may or may not be. At the same time, New York State's Attorney General Letitia James is moving ahead with her $250 million civil bank tax and insurance fraud case that has already now been filed against Donald Trump, against his company, and against his three oldest children, Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric. That could end with the dissolution of the Trump organization itself. And, of course, there's also the ongoing probe by the Manhattan District Attorney into criminal fraud charges against the former president. As to Letitia James's case, her civil case, we had a bit of news, uh, new news on Tuesday as the state appeals court in New York, the one overseeing that case, upheld a $110,000 fine against the former president, uh, which a judge had imposed last spring after Donald Trump was found in contempt of court for failing to turn over documents to the state attorney general's office as part of James's investigation. Trump was fined, you may recall, $10,000 a day for his obstruction until he uh, uh, turned over the documents that he was refusing to turn over while she was working towards that eventual $250 million civil complaint for widespread, uh, widespread fraud. And, well, the New York Court of Appeals on Tuesday has upheld that fine. Good. So, yeah. He's got to pay it. He don't get it back. Good. And if Trump thinks that he's going to find a friend on the state's court of appeals, well, not this time, Donnie. So I'm going to take that as an encouraging uh, sign as well about how the rest of the case could go. The rest of the case that could end the Trump organization as we know it, or at least cost them a whole lot of real money. Uh, you know, as far as how that is going and whether Trump's going to be able to wriggle out of it, as he often seems to do. In one sense, the state cases against him in Georgia and in New York may have a more satisfying ending in that if he is convicted, he cannot be pardoned by the next Republican president to come along. In New York, the court is unlikely to help him out at all, as we've seen, and neither will the state's Democratic governor, I suspect, with a pardon. In Georgia, however, they have a Republican governor, uh, Brian Kemp. But in Georgia, the governor does not have the power to pardon Trump. So do not sell those state investigations short. That said, 
the sprawling investigations at the federal level into Trump's stolen classified documents and into the January 6th insurrection and all that's related to it. Well, those probes continue to sprawl under the oversight of recently appointed special counsel Jack Smith. There has been a lot of action in both of those matters in recent days, so I'm going to need some help to that end. Uh, it has been a while since we've spoken with our friend, our longtime friend, the great Marcy Wheeler, independent national security and accountability journalist at her site, EmptyWheel.net, who seems to know often more and read more about all of the ongoing cases and filed motions and trials and known evidence than just about anyone else. I was going to say, you know, often including the prosecutors themselves. <laughs> True who are bringing these cases, uh, in any event, there is a lot going on all at once in all of the various federal cases that are separate from the state cases, which are now bearing down and closing in on the disgraced former president of the United States. By way of a very quick sample, over the weekend, we learned that Trump's legal team, while much of the corporate media was otherwise obsessed with unidentified flying balloon-like objects, uh, the Trump legal team turned over yet Another set of classified documents to the Department of Justice under a new criminal subpoena to do so, apparently. And this time, the material turned over to special counsel Jack Smith's prosecutors included at least one digitized version of a document with classified markings on it that was on a laptop computer and on a thumb drive which seems to offer the very, well, the first hard evidence of sort of a whole nother set of concerns in that particular probe. In that same case, we recently learned that two of Trump's attorneys, Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob, recently appeared before the federal grand jury in D.C. looking into that case. The pair were reportedly behind the declaration that was given to federal prosecutors last year at Mar-a-Lago, claiming that a diligent search of the proper had been done and that, you know, they could testify that there were no more classified records at Mar-a-Lago. The DOJ wisely did not believe them uh, because, well, they subsequently obtained a search warrant and found more than 100 such documents with classified markings and, in fact, thousands of such pages and other presidential records. Did the attorneys Corcoran and Bob know that? Uh, when they uh, gave this declaration to prosecutors, did they know that the declaration was, in fact, false? Over the past 24 hours or so, news has broken that while Corcoran may have appeared before the grand jury to discuss these matters, he may have cited attorney-client privilege to avoid testifying about them. But on Tuesday night, the New York Times broke the news that special counsel Jack Smith is now attempting to pierce the attorney-client privilege by citing the Broad crime exception that prevents the use of that attorney-client privilege when it's believed that an attorney may have participated in an actual crime with their client in some way. Then there's the January 6th accountability front. We have also recently learned there that former Vice President Mike Pence has now been subpoenaed to give his testimony to the federal grand jury looking into that matter, which is also being overseen by special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, looking into the sprawling criminal conspiracy surrounding January 6th and all the efforts to steal the election, 
from 2020 that went with it, this uh, move to bring in Mike Pence may be regarded as a signal that Smith's January 6 probe is nearing decisions on indictments, potentially, of the former president. And then over the past 24 hours or so, we have learned that Pence plans to try and avoid that grand jury testimony against the man who arguably tried to have him killed on January 6 by using a, well, what's being called a novel interpretation of the Constitution's speech and debate clause, even if it's one that another former vice president, the Marcy Wheeler, wrote a lot about in years past, also tried to cite if my memory serves. And then there's the trial on seditious conspiracy charges regarding uh, their uh, their part in the uh, January 6th insurrection by the uh, white supremacist Proud Boys. That trial continues on the heels of a bunch of Oathkeeper militia boys being found guilty of seditious conspiracy in recent weeks. Oh, I'm sure I'm leaving something out. Many things, probably, but that's just some of what I hope to discuss with Empty Wheels' Marcy Wheeler today. Oh, Marcy Wheeler, welcome back to the broadcast. I hope we can find something to talk about. I don't know where to start. I don't either. Uh, here, actually, I do, Marcy, because I, I want to fly through a lot of that stuff I just mentioned. But first, I got to ask, where is Jack Smith? And I don't mean where is he, why hasn't he brought charges yet. I mean, literally, where is Jack Smith? Why is there still no video or photo of this guy other than that one from, you know, about three years ago uh, and one from 1990? Where is this guy and how can it be that nobody has actually seen him publicly, Marcy? Well, it did take uh, at least a month for him to return to the country because he had a bike accident, Uh like almost simultaneously you know, after being named uh, special counsel, uh-huh. he is back in the country, but he's, I mean, look, Mueller did the same thing. It took forever for us to get new pictures of Mueller because he just never showed up uh, for photographers to take it. So I assume he's he's laying low in the same way. But we saw, at least we saw Mueller, you know, sort of walking in and out with a briefcase. We have no, nobody has seen, have you seen a photo of Jack Smith? No. I just think that's really weird. Does it tell us anything in particular about him, about his work as a special counsel on these two different Trump cases, uh, the stolen documents at Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th case? Um, I'm not going to lose sleep on that for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One is uh, I think it's smart to, keep, to lay low mm-hmm. if you're a special counsel like him. But the other reason is I think that the degree to which his appointment really changed things is wildly overstated by mm. many people in the press. So in other words, like, uh, everyone, I'm, I've started this running thread, mm-hmm. right? So all these inflammatory words, the most aggressive right. step ever that Jack Smith has taken, this yeah. is a new escalation. That's all garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason it's garbage is because these are the same prosecutors that were investigating this for some of them over two years, uh-huh. okay? And so this notion that he came in and things flipped a switch, are it's just wrong. I think that what is happening is, uh, you know, A, everyone wants to tell a story about Jack Smith. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to see a video of Jack Smith coming in on his bike. Right. B, I think that people are attributing agency to Jack Smith, which is not really all that different from all the prosecutors who've been working these mm. cases for a long time. 
Um, and then also, I think people forget that the documents case, the stolen documents case, was on hold, or largely on hold, from mm-hmm. September through December 12th. Right. And so, for a good month after he was appointed, and so a lot of the things that look like activity right now, some of which you just mentioned, a lot of that actually is stuff that, if they could have, DOJ would have taken those steps in mm. September or October, but they were not permitted. Gotcha. Today, so. So, so your theory of the case here, then, is that really this sort of stuff would have been happening anyway. It shouldn't be attributed to a, a, a newly aggressive stance now that Jack Smith is in place, essentially. No, and the other thing is we can look at uh, so many of these things, like you mentioned Evan Corcoran. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're going for, they're trying to compel him to testify about crime fraud stuff. First of all, I looked today, it is over 1,700 days since the first time a lawyer with crime fraud accepted involving Trump, which was Michael Cohen back in April of 2018. Mm-hmm. So, the thing is, Trump, I mean, he does this deliberately. He hides behind lawyers, and the lawyers do stupid things, and then the lawyers get investigated. And so it's actually not new for a lawyer to be crime fraud compelled, mm-hmm. like Evan Corcoran is about to be. It's just that he probably will avoid jail in a way that, say, Michael Cohen did not. Well, um, to to be clear, and again, this comes from the New York Times. They broke the news uh, on Tuesday, which I'm sure drove you crazy when they noted uh, that this uh, signals, quote, an aggressive new dimension to the inquiry and underscores the legal peril. It's, yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's been clear since August uh-huh. that this is where it would go. Because the, the um, and in fact, I didn't write a post today, but I will in the near future, there's another lawyer that we haven't accounted for, and we don't know whether uh, we don't know who that is. It mm-hmm. could be Boris Epstein, which is would be the most interesting one. But there are two lawyers and two persons in the affidavit, and Evan Corker is only lawyer two mm-hmm. in the affidavit. So there's another lawyer involved. Jesse Bennell is another one who was also named by the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been clear since we saw the affidavit for the search of Mar-a-Lago that the lawyers involved. And to be sure, Christina Bob, who also testified, Alina Haba testified, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Fitton, who's not an attorney, but probably Trump trusted the most of all of his attorneys, <laughs> also testified. Um, it's been clear since then that these people were all going to testify and that, and that the claims, the, the entire search in August was premised on the fact that what the lawyers did when the head of counterintelligence, DOJ, head of counterintelligence, Jay Brat, showed up on June 3rd, that was obstruction. And if those lawyers were involved in obstruction, uh, we were headed for this crime fraud exception moment since August. And it was delayed because there was a long special master. And mm-hmm. um, it's it, like, if anybody's surprised by this, especially people at the New York Times, Mm-hmm. They need to. They need to pick a beat. Like you know, one of the problems is many of the journalists who are covering this are are political journalists. They're not DOJ journalists. Mm-hmm. It's like it's been clear since August that we were headed towards lawyers testifying. And just to be clear, then the uh, the 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 crime fraud exception here, the the crime that we're talking about, uh, as as you're able to assess it out is obstruction of justice, that these attorneys, uh, Evan Corcoran, Christina Bob, maybe uh, some others, 
were essentially helping Donald Trump to keep those documents from the DOJ, that they knew there was more. And when they essentially uh, told uh, the the prosecutors that, oh, that's it, we're giving you everything that is here at Mar-a-Lago, that they knew they were lying and that they were actually helping him to commit the crime of obstruction. Not necessarily. So um, uh, Paul Manafort, if you recall, was prosecuted Mm -hmm. for FARA violations for hiding the fact that he was working for Ukraine when he pretended he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And they brought his attorney in from, I don't know, 2014, and same thing, uh, same judge, I think, uh, said crime fraud exception, and that lawyer didn't do anything wrong. What that lawyer did was get lied to, and actually Mike Flynn's lawyers also got lied to, although it never came to this in court. Uh Um, And so unlike, for example... Michael Cohen, who was involved in the in the Stormy Daniels hush payment, mm-hmm. where he did go to jail for that, mm-hmm. um, it's more likely that in this case they're saying Trump told you Evan Corcoran that there were no uh. documents anywhere else in Mar-a-Lago, and so you just searched this storage facility, and we need you to go on the record to say Trump to to explain exactly what Trump told you. I see. So, so that's the kind of thing. That's my guess. Yeah. Uh, based on what we know. That, so they themselves might not have committed a crime, but they were involved in this crime uh, that perhaps Donald Trump sort of forced them to uh, take part in. The, they, uh, yeah, they were used to commit a crime. Gotcha. It would be the crime fraud exception. Now, I, I think Boris Epstein is probably an exception to that. Uh, and that's another issue. Give it two weeks, and I think that's going to get a lot more interesting. <laughs> Good. But uh, as far as Evan Corcoran, my guess is he was lied to Christina Bob. I mean, these people basically knew well enough to protect themselves, to not be the ones signing the documents. Um, and that continues. Like, if you're a lawyer for Donald Trump, would you yeah. sign a document? I wouldn't. Well, no, I wouldn't. But then again, uh, you say uh, Christina Bob may have known better. She, of course, the former uh, uh, One America News Network host, anchor, reporter. I don't know what to call her. She's apparently also an attorney. I'm not sure she would uh, have been smart enough to uh, stay She was. She was pretty good. Really? I want to say this. Really? Yeah, I want to say this for OAN or wherever, whatever propaganda outlet she works. Yeah. She's pretty smart. She was like... She rewrote the statement that she signed to make sure she wasn't going to go to jail. Mm. So, you know... You know, good okay. for her. There you go. Well, now, the biggest news to me, we're st- sticking on the uh, stolen documents here uh, with Marcy Wheeler for uh, a few more questions. Uh, the biggest news to me, uh, at least, uh, regarding those stolen documents over the past few days, is the fact that at least one of the uh, documents with classified markings was apparently scanned and digitized and copied to both a laptop computer in the possession of an aide who worked for a Trump uh, for for Trump's main f- uh, fundraising pack, and copied to a thumb drive, suggesting copies of that file and Lord knows how many other classified documents or presidential records could already be out there in the ether. Marcy, no, is, is that as big of a deal as it feels like to me? I mean, we make fun of probably oh, it's a whole not. new level, but is this a whole new level? No, no, no. It's it's probably not. Although, I mean, there are lots of big deals in the stolen documents thing. I think that that one is a big deal for legal reasons, but not necessarily for evidentiary reasons, but not necessarily for like, you know, Trump sold out the country. And here's why. Well, first of all, I've been warned against the thumb drive part of that story. Okay. Definitely stuff got copied onto a laptop. Definitely Molly Michael, who is sort of Trump's 
trusted uh, executive assistant, mm-hmm. ordered another lower-level aide to uh, to basically take Trump's calendars, and so that lower-level aide scanned them all and put them on our laptop, and that's how, at least the public version is, that's how classified documents ended up on her laptop. The big question, and 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 we are led to believe, and this may also not be true, but we are led to believe that this is just presidential presidential calendars. And even, but even assuming that's true, uh-huh. the questions that are raised by that story and also the story about the classified documents folder that Trump was allegedly using to cover up a blue light by the side of his bed mm-hmm. is not just why. Trump took all of his calendars and brought them home and his super PAC put them on a laptop. But that's a big one. Like mm-hmm. that is using government property for your own for your own uh, um, profit. Mm-hmm. And we know that Jack Smith in the January 6th case is investigating the PAC. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like these two investigations for a long time, for like months at least, have been collapsing into one. And mm-hmm. this is one example where... If they took documents that they were not entitled to take home home to then fundraise off of, and along the way a couple of classified documents were included, then all of a sudden these two separate investigations are one. That's one issue. Right. But the really big issue is the FBI is generally pretty thorough when they do a search. And they were in there in August, mm-hmm. right? Yep. They search for stuff like this in August. So why is it that they miss? those classified records in that so so as again we're led to understand there's a box with those classified records and then sometime last year of uncertain date and the lawyers are being very cagey about when this happened but um sometime last year those files were scanned and moved onto this aid's laptop um and so when did that happen we don't know one of the reasons this is interesting legally so the aide says oh my gosh i had no idea i was taking classified documents and Let's assume she's right. Let's assume she just was doing what she was told and trying to profit off of government property. Mm-hmm. Um, even so, the statute that they are investigating Trump under, which is the Espionage Act, it's 18 U.S.C. 793, the warrant in October, in, in August, sorry, said E, meaning they're just, at that point, they were just investigating Trump for refusing to give back classified documents, basically. You know, like DOJ Mm -hmm. said to him, give us back all the classified documents. He said, no, 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 no. And that's the crime there. Mm -hmm. Um, But that part of the Espionage Act has a couple of other clauses, one of which is F, which says, if through your own negligence or or your failure to store classified documents properly, Mm -hmm. somebody else comes along and takes them, Mm -hmm. then you're liable for that as well. Uh And so that's, I think, the significance of this aid making copies of these classified documents that were in a storage closet. Um, but we still don't know why weren't those found by the FBI in August. And well, that's the, the question that I think is really pressing. Well, could one of the answers be that those documents were not actually at Mar-a-Lago at that time? Right. Bingo. Or or same thing with the, um, the classified document that Trump allegedly used to cover up the blue light by the side of the bed. 
And, and that's a, the sort of thing that concerns me, that they didn't find that, uh, suggesting it could have been elsewhere. That computer, that laptop computer was elsewhere, was not found at Mar-a-Lago, as, uh, as you pointed out, that uh, ABC News uh, seems to have reported the computer itself was elsewhere. If those were elsewhere, if that if those documents she scanned were elsewhere, doesn't it tell us that other documents could also already be out in the wild? I think that's the issue. I think that FBI, I mean, so what happened was um, in October, Trump was like, yeah, maybe I'll let the FBI do a search. Exactly the kind of consensual search, by the way, that Biden and Pence have both now agreed mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so a couple more documents were found at both houses, but they're done. Or uh, Pence has one more property. Maybe they'll search that too. But basically, they're like, come search my property. Mm-hmm. Now we basically know all of the entire universe of the classified documents that Trump, that, that Biden and Pence had. Right. Trump, in October, was, was reportedly thinking about doing that. And then, all of a sudden, no. He's going to pay Tim Parlatore's firm to hire people to do the search for him. Right. And there was this moment in December where there were all these leaks about this. And or not leaks. I mean, they were they were, you know, people feeding the press. And Mm -hmm. it was it was one of those remarkable stories where, like, there were vastly conflicting stories at first. And then over time, these outlets chased each other. And the end of the night, the, the, the supposed like, you know, big reveal at the end of the night was that there were two documents found in a storage closet. Mm -hmm. And all those journalists said, no more documents. (laughs) They're done with the search, no more documents. This was on December 6th and 7th of last year. And then now we discover, and this is actually something that Parlatoria hasn't gotten enough uh, harassment for or enough uh, criticism for. Mm -hmm. Um, They found, as you said, a box with some classified documents in it, and then they learned that an aide had copied these onto her laptop, and they also found a folder that, that you know, it says evening classified briefing, and neither of those things did Trump's, did Tim Parlatore's firm turn over to DOJ. Right. And so now DOJ is saying, yeah. So, so back in December, basically... Uh, Trump's lawyer was lying to the press and saying, you know, only two documents. And now we learn, literally, two months later, that there are these other things they found. And the attention has been placed on this ridiculous story about covering up the blue light on the side of the bed. But the question is, why didn't you tell DOJ? No, exactly. And that's what I feel like uh, when looking at this, that there's really... I, I, you know, I have no confidence. You know, there's still the, the, the reports in that initial uh, uh, search warrant that was executed in August. You know, these sort of dozens of empty file folders with classified markings on them that we don't know what happened to the documents within them. Donald Trump has claimed, oh, I wanted to keep them as uh, keepsakes or, or, or trophies. Um, and I got to get to the January 6th stuff. But is, is that claim even plausible, Marcy Wheeler, that you know, he was only doing it because he he wanted to keep them for trophies as you've described them well again i think the big question is because we know that um walt nauta the valet Mm -hmm. whom somebody ordered to move boxes out of the storage closet so that when evan corcoran did his search they wouldn't be there right we know that he moved them into trump's residence you know maybe not his bedroom but they he moved them somewhere in the residence 
And so the chances that the FBI wouldn't at least glance through Trump's residence to find out, to see if there were, say, classified document folders sitting on his blue light by the side of the bed, are nil. I mean, that's not the way the FBI works. So the question is why, you know, the question is not is that a garbage story, which it is, but uh, the question is why the FBI didn't find these documents in Mm -hmm. August. Let and me, one great possibility is that documents were moved back to Mar-a-Lago after the search. Which, yes. You know. Yeah. And he's got a lot of properties. Those uh, documents could have been in a lot of places. Uh, one last uh, question on this. Uh, I want to get your, you know, since the media still seem to have a problem Telling the difference between the stolen documents and and lies about them by Donald Trump versus the uh, you know discovery of a handful of documents by both President Biden, uh, his aides, and Vice President, uh, former Vice President Pence, who found a few documents, uh, notified authorities, returned them right away. Uh, let me just get your uh, quick FCC safe response to this exchange on Fox. Uh, business between Maria Bartiromo and this yutz Joe Concha a week or so ago, comparing uh, the you know the cases of Joe Biden and and his documents versus Donald Trump and his hundreds of stolen documents. This was a few weeks ago, but I want to get your thoughts, particularly after the weekend news about you know newly discovered scanned uh, documents on a on a laptop computer. When you actually zero in on what Trump did and what Biden did, it seems Biden's malfeasance here with these documents is much worse. Joe? Donald Trump at least had the documents at a location where the Secret Service was guarding that right. location. Secret Service was right? guarding it. And in Joe Biden's case, a Corvette was guarding. That's There was Mar-a-Lago and then there's Car-a-Lago. And I'll take Mar-a-Lago in terms of which was more secure. Anything safe for air that you can say in response to that, Marcy Wheeler? Breaking news, the former vice president of the United States was not given Secret Service protection between the time he left the Obama administration and became president. That's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Of course he had Secret Service protection. Of course, and, and he did not have, as Trump did, all of these foreigners waltzing through his beach resort showing mm-hmm. off his love letters from Kim Jong-un. I mean, these people are just trying to find something to cling to, but there's, I, I mean, I've done this and. I don't know, maybe you can link it, but like I've done this table to compare the things. Yes, love that table. Um, love that. Use yeah, it all the time. Yeah, I love time. that table. That's, yes. That, uh, <laughs> you know, I should get. A, I should give myself a raise because it's, yes. it's very basic. It's like the number of documents out of the world, the sensitivity of the documents out of mm-hmm. the world. We know that Trump knew about these documents. There's thus far no evidence that, that either Biden or Pence did. Um, the Biden and Pence story is that they were careless they or their staff were careless with packing up, both in times of pressure and stress. And, you know, already we have abundant evidence that Trump, like, cultivated, went out and found documents he wanted when he was turning documents back. He went and personally sorted through the documents to decide what to keep. Then he kept doing that. Yep. Um, and so, like, maybe ultimately he did this because he is a narcissist and he just felt like he needed Kim Jong-un letters. Mm-hmm. But um, but the abundant evidence thus far says he, I mean, the law, here's the thing, the law that, at least with Trump and probably with Biden because he's president and, and, and because of statutes limitation and a bunch of other reasons, the law they're considering is the Espionage Act. And you need to be witting of your unlawful retention of documents. 
So unless they have proof with Biden that he did this purposely, then uh, even if he weren't president, it would go nowhere. Whereas with Trump, we have so much evidence that he went out of his way to keep these documents. Okay, uh, got a lot to get to uh, with Marcy Wheeler, but I need to take a break. So sit tight, Marcy, and we will come back to talk about the January 6th investigation and all of the stuff related to that with uh, the great Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. Yeah. I really love to watch them roll. Kind of. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com watching the wheels go round and round with Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net. Okay, Marcy, let's jump to uh, some of the latest news about special counsel Jack Smith's other federal probe now before a grand jury in D.C. That's the January 6th insurrection and related attempts by Donald Trump and friends to steal the 2020 presidential election. When asked uh, whether he would testify to the bipartisan House Select Committee on January 6th, uh, Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, who was targeted for hanging by Trump's supporters after Trump called him out at his uh, January 6th rally, uh, Mike Pence said on Face the Nation last year that he would not testify to the committee, House committee, because of separation of powers between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Will you answer questions about that day before Congress? Congress has no right to my testimony. Uh, we have a separation of powers under the Constitution of the United States, um, and I believe it would establish a terrible precedent. Uh, for the Congress to summon a vice president of the United States to speak about deliberations that took place uh, at the White House. So you're uh, you're closing the door on that entirely. um, I'm closing the door on that. Okay, so he wouldn't speak to the House committee because he was a member of the executive branch. He wouldn't speak to the legislative branch. But now, now that he's been subpoenaed uh, over the weekend, apparently, or at least we learned about it over the weekend, uh, by Jack Smith's federal grand jury in D.C. in a criminal probe, Mike Pence has announced that he will invoke a uh, what the media are describing as a novel interpretation of the Constitution's speech and debate clause to fight that subpoena by essentially claiming, if I understand it, that in his other role as president of the Senate on January 6th, he can't, as a member of the legislative branch, be forced by the executive to testify about what went on on January 6th when he oversaw the certification of the Electoral College. A vote amid Trump's insurrection that day. Does that, as the corporate media like to say, signal a whole new level in this investigation? And does uh, Pence's objection hold any water or is it simply going to serve to delay any potential indictments that might be brought by Jack Smith? 
you and I have been doing this for so long. Mm-hmm. I I feel like I've been on your show when I talked about Dick Cheney claiming yes. that he was a barnacle branch. Yes, that was yeah. that, that was my next so, question, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not unprecedented. I mean, Dick right. Cheney claimed same thing. Like he he couldn't be he couldn't be overseen by Congress for yes. precisely that reason because he was a barnacle branch attached to the it's whatever. That was David Addington. This is the same logic. It's important to know um, most charitably to this to this claim from Mike Pence that he, not him, mm-hmm. but one of his aides is represented by a guy named Emmett Flood, who is maybe D.C.'s biggest defender of executive power. Mm-hmm. And he helped Dick Cheney make it through the end of the Bush administration without going to prison. And so Emmett Flood, some of this is Emmett Flood speak. There is a continuity between Dick Cheney and Mike Pence, and we're seeing it in this kind of barnacle bl- barnacle branch claim. Where they're, but, but where they're uh, claiming honestly, they can't do it because they're a member of the executive, they can't do this, and they're, they're a both, member right? of the like, uh, legislative. Kamala they can't do Harris that. woke right. up today as the most powerful person in the United yes. States, and God bless her. I hope she uses those yes. those powers to, right. to, to good. Um, <laughs> but I will say. I mean, one thing that's going on is that Mike Pence thinks that he has a chance in God's earth of running for president, which he doesn't. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, he's going to do things to avoid angering his party. And one of those things is to to not be honest about what happened on January 6th. Not be honest about the fact that, as you said, he was targeted for assassination. So that's one thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. Another thing um, that's going on, and and this is very subtle, but... Um, he wrote a book and published an excerpt of the book on, in the Wall Street Journal. And much of the stuff that I think Jack Smith would want to ask him about was mm-hmm. in the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. So that makes this entire claim much more ridiculous because it's like, well, you know, you told the Wall like, why will you not say under oath the things you said in the Wall Street Journal. Well, that gets you through. That gets you over the executive privilege claim, but it doesn't necessarily get you over the uh, speech and debate clause, where a member of the legislative body is not supposed to be questioned about their work there. Correct? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at a, at a more basic level, one of the things that I think Pence is getting a pass on is that he's willing to say he's willing to make claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal that he's not willing to say under oath. And that should be the first thing that people say. It's like, you know, you want to run for president. How can you expect us to trust you when you are making these claims that you won't say under under oath? Mm-hmm. And then the other really important thing, and this is very, so like one of the reasons Jack Smith likely wants to talk to him is because he said something in the Wall Street Journal that was sort of maybe uh, helpful for Trump. And so Smith needs to get that on the, get, get that, under oath, mm-hmm. because if Trump might treat that as exculpatory if he ever was charged. And so that's one thing that's going on is he needs one of the things that Jack Smith is pretty obviously doing right now is getting all the people who said nice things about Donald Trump and making them say that before a grand jury so they can be held accountable for lying, mm-hmm. which many of them obviously are. That's one thing. But the other really, really subtle thing, um, and um, this was pointed out by Hugo Lowell of The Guardian, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is really insightful, is that one thing that's not included in Pence's book is a meeting on December 21st, 2020, with basically the Freedom Caucus. Him, Trump, the Freedom Caucus. And he did not go on the record about what happened at that meeting, and there's abundant reason to suspect that there's a lot of 
criminal wrongdoing in mm. that meeting. Mm. And that's something if I were Jack Smith, I'd want to ask him about. And that's something that, uh, you know, now we get into real Barnacle Branch is if Mike Pence is trying to protect the Freedom Caucus by refusing to testify, not yeah. Trump. This is not executive privilege. This is people, you know, people like uh, Scott Perry and Jim Jordan. Mm -hmm. um, how can he refuse to share that testimony, particularly because it's probably at that point, he was probably going along with the gig. I mean, I, I well, think it's, that it's congressional deliberations. He's because he's a member of the legislature. He's a member of Congress as the president of the Senate. He doesn't have to talk about his deliberations, I suspect, would be the the way he would uh, the claim that Pence would make. No. Well, I mean, I don't want to dis I, I don't want to um, I don't want to lie to people like, look, this this is not a frivolous challenge. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that Emmett Flood is behind it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a challenge that is being done for good reasons. It's mm -hmm. not the only reason it's being done. It's primarily being done because he wants to run for president. But it is a legally interesting challenge. We'll see where it goes. Um, and, yeah, you're right. It could stall things. But I think but, – but the other thing it could do is, you know, if, if Pence says, I refuse to testify under any circumstance, then one thing that Jack Smith might do is say, well, fine, then you won't testify any, under any circumstance. I can write off the possibility that you're going to give exculpatory testimony for Trump, and then I can go ahead and do whatever I'm going to do. Well, that, that, um, that it, yeah, go ahead. It's, I mean, it is an interesting argument. I don't want to lie. It is, it's not a completely frivolous argument, mm -hmm. but I think what you, I mean, you know, look, Lindsey Graham had to go. Uh, for the Georgia investigation and answer on a question-by-question -question basis and mm -hmm. say, well, that's not legislative. And he had to answer a lot of questions. And, you know, maybe he's one of the people that the, the, the Georgia special grand jury believed was not entirely forthcoming. But uh, I think that that is the end game for this, where he would say, well, I can't answer the question. I mean, some of the things he's hiding is what Trump said to him after January 6th at lunch. Mm -hmm. That's you know, that's an executive privilege question, but that's already been waived, so let's have that. Right. Yeah. Uh, some of these questions about what his role as president of the Senate are are actually quite interesting because he actually was in a legislative role there. Uh, but we mostly know what that was about, and we mostly just want to rule out exculpatory testimony. I want the December 21st meeting. That's what I want. Gotcha. And and because I want to fly through, we're almost out of time here. I want to fly through a few more uh, points on this. So very quickly, uh, just bottom line, if Pence's attempt to avoid the grand jury um, is somehow successful or at least delays it long enough, uh, would would that prevent Smith from being able to bring to uh, to indict Trump, at least as you see it? I hesitate to say where. Zach Smith is going because uh, for one reason, because I think there are more moving parts. New York Times the other day said, oh, there are more moving parts than we knew. In fact, CNN did a piece back in maybe even September saying there are more, more moving parts. Like one of the things that DOJ has been doing for a long time, well, for the entire period where everyone's been screaming, DOJ has been doing nothing, uh -huh. is they've been investigating, the, they've been following the money. Yes. And in fact, Merrick Garland said this under yes. you know, in October of 2021. He's like, we're following the money. Right. Trust me, we're following the money. And so just the other day, New York Times was like, oh, my gosh, they're following the money. Um, and so, so 
I think that DOJ, in every phase of the investigation, so from the crime scene on up, they have been talking about the pressure and the threats against Pence. Like every single person involved in a conspiracy one way or another involves Pence. And so, yeah, maybe they can't charge that until they at least know what Pence is going to say and what he's not going to say. But there are other parts of, say, mm-hmm. a presumed conspiracy, like the financial side. And, um, and we don't know tactically what they're going to do. Are they going to start charging people to get them to flip? Are they going to charge, say, mm. Mark Meadows or mm-hmm. some of the lawyers or Rudy Giuliani and then, um, and then try and get them to testify again? We don't know. I mean, so I think at this point, particularly on the January 6th stuff, this is where things get tactically uncertain and Pence is one part of that. And that was uh, the money was actually that ne- the sort of the next section I wanted to get to. And again, running out of time. You. you did. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to have to do a quick uh, over the weekend. Washington Post <laughs> broke the news that the Trump campaign paid some six hundred thousand dollars to a research firm in December of 2020. This would be just days before the uh, January 6th insurrection to examine essentially every possible case of fraud or error or miscount that they could dream up in uh, the six sort of key swing states. Now, the researchers looked at absolutely everything, according to the Washington Post report, and found nothing. And they told Donald Trump about it. Their report was never released to the public because they found nothing that would actually change the results of the election. Well, does that create sort of a clear lane for a simple wire wire fraud charge against uh, Trump? Because you got the House uh, January 6th committee sort of alluded to it as the big ripoff. Trump campaign raised some $250 million for their official, quote, official election defense fund that did not exist. Uh, they didn't have such a fund. But either way, they knew the whole time. Trump knew that there was no fraud, nonetheless raised millions on the fraudulent idea that there was. Could this be a simple sort of, you know, Al Capone, get him on tax evasion uh, case in the end that they just go after him on on the money? It's a lot of money that the, has been the Washington Post. The Washington Post report is actually not the smoking gun. It's sort of the reverse smoking gun. It says they actually spent money on things that they claimed they were spending money on. And given that it was a Josh Dossey report, uh, my suspicion is I have zero doubt that it came from Trump's people as a way to be exculpatory for them. I'm more interested, just as one example, there was a junior campaign staffer who was tasked with doing some research projects for Victoria Tonsig. We have no idea what that was. And it's probably not all that interesting from a research perspective because this woman, the researcher, was like 20. Mm -hmm. But... What the Washington Post story was interesting for to me was they said, oh, there were a bunch of other research projects. We don't know what happened to them. And and one of them we do. One of them we know that this woman was doing research for Victoria Tonsig. We know that Victoria Tonsig has been on the fake electors subpoenas for mm-hmm. a year, mm-hmm. I think, at least, uh, well, at least since May, right. so at least nine months. And we have no idea why, and it may be this kind of research project. So, so. My guess is that that's that the Washington Post story is is the most 
positive spin they can put on the things that they spent their super PAC money on. So it's the a po- so positive. Let, let, you let, already said. Let me you just, already said is they said we're raising money for this voter fraud fund, mm-hmm. and the voter fraud fund didn't exist. So there's your there's your wire fraud before you get to the research. So your your the claim that uh, w- w- the point you're trying to make here is that uh, while it seems they collected two hundred fifty million dollars, they didn't spend it on election defense. In fact, uh, stories like this, that they spent more than half a million dollars on this uh, research, that actually proves, oh, look, they did spend the money on election defense after all. Yeah. I mean, I again, uh, Josh Dossi tends to be quite favorable to Trump, and that's the kind of story Mm. that they might point to and say, look, like we actually did what we were saying, whereas what you said earlier, which is that the fund they claimed they were raising money for didn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's a bigger issue. And then uh, another bigger issue is that they have paid their defense out of these funds. They've, I mean, a- again, one of the important takeaways and what what CNN reported months and months and then months before that ago <laughs> is that the financial side of this investigation has been going on far longer than people actually know. Mm. And one of the reasons that's important is because a lot of the lawyers who otherwise would be protected, now we're doing full circle, now we're back to attorney-client privilege, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the lawyers who otherwise might not have to testify, they're having to testify about who actually paid them. They're having to testify, and that may give DOJ a way to chip away a privilege. There are some lawyers who have made themselves out to be heroes, who in fact were profiting wildly off of this. And so I think that the financial stuff, not only the Al Capone side, like we're going to arrest him for wire fraud, mm-hmm. I think it also is a tool that DOJ will use to get cooperators for uh, their own graft. Gotcha. So you can sort of flip folks if they're in trouble for this crime, flip folks to the to the larger crimes, the seditious conspiracies and so forth. Marcy, is the, uh, since we last talked, uh, about six members of the Oath Keepers, I think, have been found guilty uh, in jury trials of seditious conspiracy. Uh, there's a number of uh, Proud Boys uh, who are facing those same charges even as we speak. I think they're in the 21st day of their of their trial. What wow, if, you're good. It's exactly the 21st day. Well, you know, I pay attention. What if, uh, uh, if any relation does that have to... To charges that Donald Trump might eventually face, you got to answer this question really quick. I'm sorry, but uh, the fact that they were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, does that ultimately somehow, or how does that ultimately end up affecting or hurting Donald Trump? Prosecutors led on Donald Trump saying, stand back and stand by. That was in their opening argument. And so in the Oath Keepers case where people have already found guilty, I think we've, or, we've always known the ties between them and Donald Trump were a little bit more attenuated. Prosecutors led. Donald Trump was the opening act for the, sedition, the, the seditious conspiracy case against the Proud Boys. And people, I think, really aren't paying enough attention to that fact. Donald Trump was the opening act for the seditious conspiracy case against the Proud Boys. And that means they tie... Uh, him that they potentially bring seditious conspiracy charges against him and and tie it to or at least conspiracy. I don't. I mean, yeah. I really want to caution people against about going too far down this seditious conspiracy mm-hmm. with him. But like, I you know, I, I from starting in 
no later than August 2021. I said, like, look, you can see how Donald Trump would be involved in a conspiracy with some of these people. And I said then, Mm -hmm. I said, for it to work, you need to prosecute Joe Biggs. Joe Biggs is the pivot between Trump, Alex Jones, and the Proud Boys, and everything that happened at the Capitol. And that is why people should be paying a whole lot more attention to what is going on in Prettyman Courthouse right now against the Proud Boys, because that prosecution led by mm-hmm. raising Donald Trump. And that is where Joe Biggs, uh, as one of the Proud Boys or a wannabe Proud Boy, whatever they're fighting over now, uh, is currently on trial for seditious conspiracy. Marcy, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you 30 seconds on this. Uh, it, it's very <laughs> premature, I realize, but I've been thinking about it a lot uh, in, in recent weeks. Uh, can a president even go to jail? I mean, he's supposed to be guarded, protected 24-7 by the Secret Service. Uh, in the worst or best case scenario, depending on how you look at it, if Donald Trump is actually indicted and charged and sentenced to prison, uh, can a president even go to prison, Marcy? Uh, a former president. I mean, you know. Yeah, former. Manuel Noriega went to prison in like three he, countries. So he, he ain't an American president. It is president. possible for a president. Is it possible for a U.S. president? I think that is really wildly premature. The man is in his 70s, mm-hmm. and a case against Donald Trump would would scroll out for four years at, at a minimum. So uh, premature. Yes. It is hypothetical that somebody of that kind of power could go to prison. Um, let's not get there. Yeah. <laughs> Marcy Wheeler is, of course, the uh, beloved founder of EmptyWheel.net. She's an independent national security and accountability journalist at EmptyWheel.net. You can find her on the Twitters at EmptyWheel and uh, even on the Mastodons at EmptyWheel. Marcy, always delightful uh, speaking with you. Sorry we didn't have anything to talk about at all today, but uh, maybe, <laughs> but maybe next time. Thanks, Marcy Wheeler. All right. Take care. Thanks. You bet. All right. We have got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Boy, that was a lot, wasn't it? Yes. If you missed any portion of that uh, lot of program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters and Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1910. That was the day the uprising of the 20,000 officially ended in New York City. As many as 30,000 young, predominantly immigrant Jewish women went back to work after a bitter 11-week strike. They faced down their bosses, the police, and the courts. Arrests and fines drained much of the union's funds. Young union leaders like Clara Lemlich had been arrested 17 times and suffered six broken ribs. Women garment workers spent most of the winter running to union meetings, handing out 
about leaflets, walking picket lines, raising funds, and distributing strike benefits. Many smaller shops settled in workers' favor early on in the strike. But by mid-February, closed shop demands kept many workers on the picket lines. The strike ended with partial but real victories. Garment workers won the 52-hour workweek, four paid holidays, employer-paid tools and materials, collectively bargained wages, and more. The International Lady Garment Workers Union started the strike with 100 members and had 20,000 by the end. All but 14 of the city's 353 shops signed contracts. But many garment workers continued to face unsafe working conditions like locked doors and flimsy or non-functioning fire escapes. Safety-related demands would not be addressed until after the 60,000-strong cloakmakers strike the following summer. One of the largest factories and worst offenders was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Workers there went back with no agreement. 147 would die a year later in a tragic fire. In the aftermath, basic fire safety principles were finally established and implemented in New York State workplaces. These formed the foundations for many modern-day fire safety practices, like exit signs and doors, better ventilation, and sprinkler systems, fire alarms, and drills.